Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Professor Benjamin D. Somer, Professor of Biblical and Ancient Semitic Languages at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and is entitled Parallelism in Preaching, Poetic Form and Religious Function. Scholars have long discussed the nature of biblical poetic parallelism, but the relationship between our understanding of the biblical poetic line and the function of, of biblical poems as scripture has not received all the attention that it deserves. So I'd like to discuss how, uh, today how theories of prosody, uh, that is to say theories about what makes a poem a poem, can help to shape a reading of some sample poems. I'll argue that the religious significance of these poems emerges much more clearly in light of attention to questions of prosody um, to the question of what, what makes a poem a poem. By the way, if you just bring me a copy of the handout, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So let me begin with some comments on, on poetic structure. In some biblical poems, the structure of the poem as a whole, that is to say, its division into stanza, recapitulates the structure of a biblical line. And understanding this recapitulation provides a key to distilling meaning from the poem. So, before we turn to the poems that I'll use to exemplify this point, I think it will be useful to review the nature of the biblical poetic line. Most biblical poems are built from a series of two or three part lines. Um, rarely one finds four part lines. Now the second, the third, and the fourth parts of a line echo, but go beyond the first part of a line in one way or another. In other words, there is some parallel among the elements of a line. Sometimes we can also note parallels not only within a line, but from one line to the next. There are many proposals for how we can refer to the two, the three, or the four, the, the four parts of a biblical poetic line. I, find, uh, I follow Benjamin Harshav in labeling them versets, as I note on the first page of the handout. So that, um, that is, each page has two pages on it. On, on page one, you'll see on the very top uh, some notes on terminology. Uh, so we can restate what I just said a moment ago. The versets of a line in biblical poet, poetry parallel each other. There are many types of parallels among these versets. The one most um, widely noted, in fact, rather overemphasized in scholarship, involves parallels of meaning. In one type of meaning-based parallelism, words in the first verset 
correspond to words with similar meanings in the second verset. We can call this lexical parallelism. And on page one of the handout, I give you some examples of these different types of parallelism that I'm discussing. In another type of meaning-based parallelism, the overall semantic import of one verset is echoed in the second, even if repeated word-for-word -word parallelism does not occur. Now we can call this semantic parallelism, or maybe whole verset parallelism. But there are many other sorts of parallels that do not involve lexical or semantic equivalents. These might involve phonological echoes, syntactic structures, or rhythm. Most lines of biblical poetry include several different kinds of parallelism. Several decades ago, both James Kugel and Robert Alter pointed out that the second and third versets of a parallel line in biblical poetry do not merely repeat the information found in the first verset. The second verset of a parallel line in biblical poetry echoes but modifies the first. The structure of the parallel line, then, is not simply a matter of equivalence. Rather, as Google points out, it, it's not a matter of A and A prime, but, but instead A and what's more B. That something, that something more often involves what Walter calls intensification of what is found in the first verset. In other cases, the second verset specifies something uh, that, that's said ambiguously or broadly um, in the first verset. To cite one example among hundreds, we can look at Psalm 29 um, on the bottom of um, page two of the handout. Um, the first of the two lines that we'll examine is a three-part line, and you can see that in the way that I've laid it out. Uh, the second is one of the relatively rare four-part lines. For the sake of economy, I've chosen two lines of poetry from Psalm 29 that display both specification and intensification. The phrase kol Adonai at the outset of the first line, um, the, the, the kol of the Lord, or the kol of Hashem, I'll pronounce the tetragrammaton uh, YHWH, uh, following the Jewish tradition of just saying Hashem in place of the divine name. The kol of Hashem is ambiguous because the word kol can mean sound, or voice, or thunder. The second verset of that first line there specifies that God's pull over the waters is in fact thunder. The third verset both intensifies and specifies, for it speaks not merely of water, of Mayim, but of Mayim Rabim, many waters, or you can even translate that as cosmic waters. The second line that you've got there, um, Hashem's thunder powerfully, Hashem's thunder majestically, and so forth, that second line of poetry also displays both specification and intensification. You can sort of follow along in the Hebrew or the translation as I paraphrase. Hashem's thunder or voice does something powerly, powerfully, but what? It does something majestically, but what? It breaks the cedars. Which cedars? Not just any cedars, but more specifically, the famous cedars of Lebanon. Uh, this specification involves intensification, since Lebanon's mountains have more water than most areas of the Near East, its cedars were especially strong, tall, and majestic. Um, and so that um, breaking those cedars is the more impressive thing than just any old cedar that could be broken uh, somewhere else in the Near East. Okay, having discharged a few pre preliminary details 
uh, to discuss the nature of poetic line structure in the Bible, uh, we can move on to the first text that I wish to discuss, which is Psalm 27. Um, you can see on the handout on pages uh, 2 and 3 um, of the handout, I'm sorry, on pages 3 and 4 of the handout, the second sheet of the handout, you can see how I lineate the, the text and how I've translated it. Now, just glancing through uh, that translation or the, or the Hebrew text that I've lineated, you'll see that, as in many biblical poems, there is a variation in Psalm 27 between two versets and three verset lines. In this particular poem, the variation between the two verset lines and the three verset lines is not random. The three verset lines are used to indicate the end of a stanza. Thus, our poem has three stanzas, each of which ends with a three-verset line. Um, and the last stanza actually simply consists of three-verset lines. Um, you get those boundary markers at verse 6, verse 12, and then verses 13 and 14, um, where we get those three-verset lines. The stanzas are stylistically distinct from, um, from each other in another significant way. In the first stanza, which is verses 1 through 6 of the text, the worshiper speaks about God in the third person. In the second stanza, verses 7 through 12, the worshiper addresses God in the second person. In the third stanza, verses 13 and 14, God is again described in the third person. Each of these stanzas has its own mood. In the first, the worshiper is confident. In the second, the worshiper is distressed. And in the third, we find ex expressions of hope alongside an implicit acknowledgement that the certainty of salvation uh, that we might want to find is not in fact possible. Now the shift in both mood and grammatical person um, as we move from the first verset to the second verset at verse 7, I'm, not, I'm sorry, from the first stanza to the second stanza at verse 7 is extremely abrupt. We move very, very suddenly from confidence to need from believing in God's reliability to worrying about God's absence. How can we account for this stark contrast between the first stanza, in which the worshiper joyously proclaims trust in God, and the second and third stanzas, in which the worshiper betrays the fear that God might in fact be far off? Hermann Gunkel provides a very simple answer to that question by asserting that this chapter of the Book of Psalms in fact, contains two completely separate psalms. The first, verses 1 through 6, is a song of confidence, he tells us. The second, verses 7 through 14, is a classic complaint, uh, a psalm of complaint and plea, a so-called lament in English. Um, now, it's not outside the range of possibility that a single chapter of the book of Psalms might contain more than one composition, but several scholars have successfully defended the unity of Psalm 27. For example, Peter Craigie and Marvin Pate point out numerous examples of shared vocabulary that draw together what Google regards as two separate poems. Further, it's not quite the case that the first stanza is entirely confident while the second and third completely lack elements of faith. The first stanza does contain intimations of darker themes that appear later in the, in the poem. For example, um, Jacob Lidstein notes the progressive deterioration at the beginning of the first stanza of the roof overhead as it moves from a stronghold, ma'oz in the Hebrew, to a hut, sukkah, and finally a tent. A glimpse into the crisis that is yet in the distance in the second stanza. 
John Goldengay has astutely noted uh, about verse 1 that the worshiper's statement that he has no reason to fear does draw attention to the fact that apparently he is worrying about something. We can also note elements of confidence in the second and third stanzas. For example, in the first versets um, of the poetic lines in verse 9, the worshiper begs God not to abandon the worshiper, but the second verset of both of those lines in verse 9 um, uh, confirms that God is the worshiper's help and salvation. So we've got something negative followed immediately by something more positive. I think that those elements help demonstrate the unity of Psalm 27 as a single composition that needs to be interpreted as a whole. Now the third stanza of the poem, verses 13 and 14, continue this ambivalence in a particularly intense way. The first word of the second stanza, the word luze in Hebrew, means if it were not the case that. Thus, our verse um, in uh, th th that, that verse, verse 13, is a relative clause of a sentence that the speaker never completes. That is, it is the if clause of a sentence whose then clause never appears. So in my translation, those three dots um, help to give that sense of a, a, a sentence that is incomplete. To be sure, the intention of that implied then clause, I think, is clear. What the speaker was thinking was something to the effect of, if not for my faith that I will see God's goodness, I would be completely lost. But the absence of the then clause gives the impression that the speaker cannot bring himself to finish the sentence. His utterance brings him perilously close to an emotional place too dangerous to approach. The verse intends to make a statement of confidence, but the speaker cannot quite get the whole thing out. We find in this single verse, then, the back and forth of the whole psalm. The confidence of the first stanza and the anxiety of the second um, are both manifest in this not quite complete expression of faith. In the next verse, verse 14, the psalm closes with imperatives that call on the worshiper and also on us to wait hopefully for God. The fact that these imperatives are deemed necessary points to the existence of doubts that have to be overcome. In this one psalm, then, I think we've got a beautiful and brief distillation of the entire Psalter as a book of faith and doubt. Last night we heard a lecture that talked about, this, about faith and doubt, which I think really actually sums up what the whole book of Psalms is about. If I had to give a title to that anthology of poetry that is the book of Psalms, I might call it the book of faith and doubt. Now the movement from faith to doubt in this particular psalm demands attention because the direction of the journey on which this psalm leads us is the opposite of what many readers might have expected of a religious text. Our worshiper in Psalm 27 does not grow into a more conventional piety over the course of the psalm, casting aside doubt to take up the armor of faith. Rather, the worshiper sets aside a seemingly ideal faith to take on a more realistic one. In fact, Lichstein argues that the, text, that the psalm criticizes the simplistic faith of the first stanza whose god he, he labels as an erzat's divinity, a facile projection of the worshiper himself. Similarly, um, Ellen Cherry maintains that in the first stanza, the worshiper thinks that he has God in his pocket. 
while the faith of that first stanza seems on the surface to be stronger, the truth is that in the second section, the worshiper speaks of God. I'm sorry, that in the, I'm sorry, in the first section, the first stanza, the worshiper speaks about God, always in the third person, as something he knows about, but not someone whom he knows. In the second stanza, when the worshiper moves to the second person in order to address God directly, the worshiper at last achieves experiential contact with God that he yearned for back in verse 4 in the first stanza. It's precisely when the worshiper speaks directly to God that doubt becomes prominent. God is no longer something the worshiper claims to know all about. In the second stanza, God is a partner in a relationship, of course, a senior partner, and relationships are slippery and unknowable in a way that does not conform to the simplistic faith of the first stanza. The direction of the psalm's movement, I think, is crucial because it models a maturing of an authentic relationship with God. A simple faith that asks no questions and admits no anxieties is not the most religious faith. A relationship that can articulate anxiety about the beloved distance is the stronger one. As Ellen Cherry writes, this psalm tells us that, I'm quoting her, unpleasant emotions are not to be repressed, but are to be healed through models that show how to handle them. Here, the psalmist gives permission to his audience to be emotionally conflicted in relationship to God. He does not urge his hearers to grin and bear it or to put on a happy face, and he does not disparage honest fear of God abandonment. That's the end of the quote from Charity. A faith that allows no doubt is not faith, but hubris. When it claims to know for sure what God will and will not do, it denies God's freedom and invests far too much in the believer's impregnable security. Such a faith is the very opposite of true piety. The wavering faith of Psalm 27 is more honest, more humble, and therefore more deeply religious. This faith is neither Pollyannish nor naive, it is realistic about the fact that God sometimes does seem absent. The Psalms faith, I would also like to suggest, um, is quintessentially Jewish. The Psalm concludes neither with fear nor with complete confidence, but with hope. Those imperatives, Kaveh al-Adonai, have hope in the Lord. The final verse of Psalm 27, I'd like to suggest, recalls the Pentateuch which does not conclude with the entry into the land of Israel and the fulfillment of God's promises. Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter of the Pentateuch, narrates not the victory of the Pentateuch's central human character, but his death. Nonetheless, the chapter leaves us, um, leaves us with the expectation that God's promises to Moses and to the patriarchs before him will yet come to fruition with the victory of Moses' assistant, Joshua. Moses' life was a success, not because he completed his task, but, but because he does not desist from it. That is, because he lived up to the teaching of his latter-day disciple, Rabbi Tarfon, in Pirkei Avot, um, Lo Alecha it's not incumbent upon you uh, to complete the task, but you are not free to desist from it, in Rabbi Tarfon's famous statement. I think that it's faithful to the nature of the Jewish religion that the Torah ends on a note of hope rather than a note of fulfillment. That tendency made it natural that the anthem of the Zionist movement and of the state of Israel is Hatikva, um, the hope, 
rather than a song with a title like, say, Anitzahon, The Victory. Hope, rather than perfect confidence, characterizes the most mature Jewish faith, a readiness to admit one's fears, to look towards God expectantly, while renouncing the claim to predict all of God's actions. I think that that rather pentateuchal faith is well displayed in Psalm 27's journey from a simple trusting piety in the first stanza, through doubt in the second, to hope in the third. So it's the dialogue between the two stanzas that is the key to understanding this highly integrated poem. The poem as a whole is structured like a line of biblical poetry. The first stanza introduces the psalm's central theme, uh, trust, bitachon in Hebrew. The second and third stanzas specify what true bitachon involves. Insofar as the faith of the last two stanzas is a more mature faith, I think we can contend that the movement from stanza to stanza involves intensification as well as specification, a move from something lower to something higher, from something simplistic to something sophisticated, from theoretical knowledge of God uh, in the third person to relationship with God in the second person. The movement of the psalm is not one of statement and echo, just as the parallel line in biblical poetry does not involve mere equivalence. Rather, we have a statement followed by a recasting in more serious terms. Now, everything that I've just said about Psalm 27 in that last set of sentences, that last paragraph, can also be said about Psalm 19. I've treated that psalm in detail elsewhere. I have an article on Psalm 19 in HTR. Um, so I'll just summarize the ways that both psalms, in both psalms, the structure of the whole recapitulates the structure of a poetic line in a theologically interesting way. We won't look at it in detail, but you may want to glance at my lineation and translation of Psalm 19 on pages 5 through 6 of the handout. In Psalm 19, as in Psalm 27, the variation between the two-verset and three-verset lines separates the poem into stanzas, verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 15. Additional features make this structure clear as well. For example, the types of parallelism in the first stanza are quite varied, while the types of parallelism in the first half of the second stanza are highly, are highly regular. As in Psalm 27, Psalm 19 is widely viewed among modern scholars as being split, split between two completely separate psalms. Um, the first stanza, many people think, is a poem that deals exclusively with, with nature. The second stanza, many people think, is a separate poem that deals with revelation. The truth is, though, that each stanza contains multiple verbal references to the other stanza, that, and these um, draw the poem together as a unity. The strong parallel between the two stanzas and the tension between them um, work together to produce the psalm's theological message. Each stanza describes a way of coming to know God. In the first one gains knowledge of God through observing God's creation. In the second one, God gains this knowledge by coming into a covenantal relationship with Hashem through Torah and commandment. The first stanza refers to the deity using a regular noun, a job title, the word El, or God, the second stanza returns, refers to the God seven times using God's personal name, the Tetragrammaton. The difference between the two different types of connection uh, between humanity and divinity shows up here to refer to a being by the being's job title 
suggests respect, but distance. That's what we get in the first stanza. From observing nature, one knows truths about God. But by observing the terms of God's covenant in the second stanza, one begins not just to know about God, but to know God. The knowledge of God in the first stanza is, at least in principle, universal, while the relationship with God in the second stanza is particular. So this is really a poem that compares two ways of knowing God, through creation and through covenant, or we might say through nature and through nomos. Now, the knowledge that comes from nature in the first stanza is valid, but it's also limited. It doesn't draw one into intimacy with God. It doesn't provide any ethical or moral directive. Nomos goes further than nature, though, supplementing it without superseding it. Knowledge of God in the first stanza requires action on humanity's part. We must observe creation, uh, think about it, uh, and come to some conclusions. The relationship with God in the second stanza, though, requires God to turn to humanity. In the first stanza, then, God is object, while in the second stanza, God is subject. For this reason, the valid but limited knowledge of God that comes from nature is not quite rightly termed revelation if we follow Christopher Zeitz in using that term to denote a willful act of disclosure on God's part. For Bart, this wouldn't really be revelation. This contrast becomes more pointed in the, very, in the very last verse of the poem, which opens us up to dialogue and redemption, for in that last verse, the speaker for the first time addresses God directly and refers to the deity as Goel, or Redeemer. The first two stanzas of Psalm 19 both deal with theology in the basic sense of the term, but they don't present functional equivalence. Rather, the revelational theology of the second stanza adds something new and valu valuable to the natural theology of the first stanza. The wording and imagery of the second stanza of Psalm 19 moves us from knowledge of God to relationship with God, from proposition to covenant, from reasoning to deed, from observation to joy, from speculation to law, from detachment to grace. Recall now how um, Robert Alter and James Krugel describe the dynamic nature of the ancient Hebrew poetic line as one of intensification of A and what's more B. That describes exactly how the second stanza of Psalm 19 relates poetically but also theologically to the first stanza. In Psalm 19, as in Psalm 27, a simple statement about prosody, about the nature of the poetic line, sums up the core theology of a, an ancient Hebrew poem. I'd like to move on to a second question of prosody and its connection to theological reading. It has long been recognized that parallelism is the core of biblical poetry. More recently, the great linguist and literary critic Roman Jakobsen has clarified really that all poetry is based on the principle of parallelism. According to Jakobsen, verse in languages around the world consists of lines. That is to say, in human cultures, a poem consists of a series of brief units of discourse that are followed by a pause. These relatively brief units of discourse will always be parallel to each other in one way or another. And because of, Loth, uh, of Robert Loth's long legacy in biblical scholarship, we biblical scholars tend to think of parallelism in terms of lexical and semantic echoing, 
Uh, that is, we tend to think of it as meaning-based parallelism, as I call it. But parallelism among poetic lines can make many, it can take other forms as well. Meter is a form of parallelism. Rhyme is a form of parallelism. In free verse, rhythm is a form of parallelism. Um, consequently, even in free verse, let's say, that eschews both meter and rhyme, we never, we, we always find, at least in all poetry, lines that resemble each other in one way or another, if for no other reason than because the speaker pauses again and again after each line. The mere fact of pausing after relatively brief units of discourse itself creates a, a, a loose but, but audible form of parallelism. Now, if we accept Jacobson's definition of poetry um, as always involving some form of parallelism, it follows that poetry is always cyclical. Verse constantly goes back even as it moves forward. For every new line echoes a line that came before it. Consequently, poetry lends itself especially well to suggesting linkages um, of ideas, of characters, of events, because as one line echoes a previous one, it also implies some connection between its content and the content of a previous line. For that reason, the literary critic Norbert Fry identifies a basic contrast between prose and poetry. Fry identifies prose as what he calls the rhythm of continuity, um, observing that the rhythm of prose is continuous, not recurrent. Lyric, on the other hand, is what Fly calls the rhythm of association. Um, in, in, in verse, um, we're constantly associating what came before with what came next. Fry and Jakobsen are noting something essential about verse, which is its circular tendency, um, its nature as something in which every new line progresses but also returns. Um, even as a poem narrates, it always moves back and back again as it moves forward in time. Um, we can see this, in, 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 I think, in a lot, in a lot of places. Let us mention one recent uh, film where I think we, we really sense this, this, this side of poetry. Um, I don't know if people have seen the film Patterson. If you've come to this conference, you probably want to go see the film Patterson if you haven't already. Um, Patterson is a film that is, above all, a film about poetry. Its, its main character is a poet and a bus driver, but it's not really just about that character. It's not just about a poet or about a bus driver. It's really about poetry, um, uh, and perhaps about public transportation, I suppose. Um, if you go take, take a look at that film, you'll notice that the opening event of the film is the closing event of the film, separated by one week. Um, the two, these two events, events are identical. Like the poem, the, move, the, the film moves back even as it moves forward in time. And while you're watching the film, pay attention to the constant presence of circles in the film. Uh, in the paintings, the clothing, the cupcakes of the main character's companion. Um, and of course, the, each day the poet, who is the main character, uh, each day the poet drives a bus route. That is, he's always on a route. He's always moving in a large circle. At the risk of, um, of reducing varied and complex cross-cultural phenomena to broad generalizations, I think we can follow Fry by noticing that poetry tends to be cyclical and prose linear. We can see this especially clearly in the Bible when the same event is, is described both in narrative, um, 
narrative prose and also in poetry. So, for example, I think this is on pages seven and eight of the handout. Let's compare how a prose narrator describes the meeting between Yael and Sisera in sequence. In chapter four, verse 19, a prose narrator says, he said to her, let me have some water, please, for I'm thirsty. Then she opened a container of milk and let him drink, and then she covered him up. We're moving forward in time. The poet in Judges 5, however, describes the same event without regard to sequence, moving ahead, but also returning in time in a back-and-forward motion. Water, he asked, milk she gave. In a bowl fit for princes, she brought forth cream. The structure here is a structure of intensification, water, milk, cream, not temporal sequence. You can see the same in the next example that we won't have time to look at. With these broader ruminations on poetry's tendency to cycle back on itself and thus to link what came before with what came later, I'd like to, for just a few minutes, to turn to one last biblical poem, Psalm 114, a beautiful and deceptively simple poem. I think a key to understanding Psalm 114 is that it alludes to not only to an event known from the Pentateuch, that is to say from uh, the Exodus, uh, but also to a particular text from the Pentateuch as well. Um, now, we might have thought, given that Psalm 114 deals with the splitting of the Reed Sea, that the text from Exodus that it alludes to might be Psalm, uh, what might be Exodus 14 or Exodus 15. In fact, however, Let's listen to the first line of the poem in Hebrew. Psalm 114, verse 1a reads, Betzeh Yisrael mi Mitzrayim. Now let's um, listen to a different text from the Pentateuch than what we might expect. Psalm, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. Let me read it aloud in a particular way. Ba, Yisrael me Mitzrayim. Um, this is less clear in the English, but in the Hebrew, uh, the first line of Psalm 114 is borrowed directly from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, which supplies all of its words. Psalm 114's opening verse set is a boiled-down version of Exodus 19:1. The psalm's first line takes the prose of Exodus and translates it into poetry. That boiling down or translation reflects the fact that poetic language tends to be terse and charged with implicit meaning, where prose tends to be wordier and its meaning more explicitly unpacked. Um, the, the poetry translates the prose into its essentials. Now, the identification of the source text is surprising, though, since Exodus chapter 19 narrates not the Exodus, but Revelation at Sinai. Why would a text that seems to be about one event um, allude to a text that speaks of another? Well, let's look, notice a couple of other ambiguities in, in Exodus in, in Psalm 114. Um, there's an oddity in verse 2 of Psalm 114, show, um, which I've rendered Judah becomes his holy, um, his holy property. First of all, why is the verb Hayatah feminine when the subject, Yehuda, is masculine? What does the word quote show mean here? And when, when, when uh, the, the psalm here refers to his property, this is a little unusual because the word his has no antecedent. We know that this is talking about God, but the word God has appeared nowhere previously 
in the poem. You get a pronoun without its normal antecedent. So let me address those questions in reverse order. Oh, actually, one final question. We read in the, in the second line of the poem, the sea saw and fled. What did the sea see? What did the sea witness that caused it to flee? I'd like to suggest that what the sea witnessed was a theophany. Throughout the Bible, for example, in, in, Psalm 19, in Exodus chapter 19, but in many other passages as well, this physical sight of God causes fear, causes people to move back and to tremble. Um, we can see that in a few of the other verses that I think that I've, I've supplied on the last page of the handout, for example. Um, in, in, uh, actually, that, no, they didn't make it in the handout, but Psalm 77 would be an example of that. Um, I'd like to suggest that the sea saw God, and that's what, um, what caused the sea to flee. Um, and that makes sense in the context of the allusion to Exodus chapter 19, since in Exodus chapter 19, both the nation Israel and Mount Sinai itself trembled and moved backwards when they witnessed the revelation, the theophany of God. Um, that allusion to, Psalm, to Exodus 19 continues as we move further into Exodus and further in, in, in Exodus 19 and further into the Psalm with language like Beit Yaakov and the idea of, of Israel as God's particular property, as God's Kodesh or God's Sigulah, um, different vocabulary for the same concept in the two different texts. Um, in other words, I, I think that the further we move into the, the text of Exodus 19 and Psalm 114, the link between the two texts becomes deeper and closer. And this, Mayor Weiss has, has suggested, explains a number of the difficulties I mentioned before. Why is the feminine verb hayata appearing in a, in a verse whose subject is masculine, Yehuda? Because the subject of that verb is really the kingdom of Judah, Mamlechet Kohanim Vegoi Kadosh, that we know from Exodus 19. Once we recognize the allusion, the dependence of the poem on the prose, the grammatical difficulty goes away. The subject of the verb appeared back in the source text, back in Exodus 19. So did the, the word God. That's why we don't need an antecedent to the pronoun his. Um, that antecedent showed up in the previous, uh, in, 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 the, in the source text. Um, the middle of the poem, however, remains surprising. I'd like to end by noting this one last oddity in the poem, and I think a solution to it. Verses 3 and 5 of Psalm 114 seem out of place. What caused the sea to flee, I, I said a moment ago, was the theophany at Sinai. But the sea, the reed sea, split three months before the theophany. So, um, that is, the sea splits in Exodus chapter 14. God's theophany doesn't appear until Exodus, until Exodus 19. The sea reacted in the first month of the year to an event that did not occur until the third. The second half of the line in question um, in, the, in the psalm is almost as strange as it refers to an event that occurred 40 years later, the splitting of the River Jordan at the end of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. Nature reacted to the Sinai Theophany, according to this poem, three months early as well as 40, months, uh, 40 years late, and also right on time when the mountains and hills um, skip later in the poem. So the mountains and the hills in Psalm 114 are punctual, but the waters are not. The sea and the river Jordan are not punctual. But that is precisely what we should expect when a poem translates um, poet prose into poetry. 
To somebody who objects that the poem gets the timing all wrong, the author of Psalm 114 might respond, that's just the sort of prosaic detail that poetry wants to move us away from. What matters to the poet are deeper affiliations among the events that undue attention to narrative sequence, sequence obscures. The liberation from slavery and the giving of the law are not two events separated in time. They are simply two facets of a single reality. So is the crossing of the Jordan River by the nation Israel into its own land, where it will live freely under that law. God who redeems, God who reveals, and God who guides us into the promised land, these are all one God. Redemption, revelation, guidance are, from the poet's point of view, all a single occurrence. Only from a limited, prosaic point of view do those things seem to be separate. The difference between the prose writer and the poet is exactly what we should expect from critics like Jakobsen and Fry. The prose writer in Exodus 19 instructs us about sequence and history. The poet in Psalm 114 encourages us to view things from a perspective outside of time. For the author of Exodus 19, what happened when is of prime importance. But for the author of Psalm 114, um, well, but the author of Psalm 114 exploits the main building block of poetry, parallelism, along with literary allusion, to highlight correspondences of a more profound significance. The six versets of verses 1 through 3 of the, of the psalm move seamlessly back and forth among the moment of the Exodus, um, in verse 1 and also in verse 3a, the moment at Mount Sinai, described in verse 2, but alluded to already in verse 1, um, and as far forward as the nation's entry into the Promised Land in verse 3b. These six versets hint also at the moment of the world's creation because of parallelism um, in, these, in the psalm between the sea and the river Jordan implies a parallel between Yam and Nahar, between sea and river that appears in biblical as well as Canaanite poetry uh, that talks about the creation of the cosmos and God's subduing of the forces of chaos. Psalm 114, in short, argues that the events of the first, third, and third month of Israel's first year in the wilderness, revelation, redemption and revelation, are really a single occurrence. Liberation from slavery without acceptance of the law would be no liberation at all. Freedom without responsibility is freedom perverted. A poem that on the surface is about one event, but whose allusions and parallelism prove it to be about another, comes to present an argument. The crossing of the Reed Sea is not the culmination of the Exodus, but one part in the creation of a covenant between God and Israel, a covenant that is evident um, on a close reading of the poem's parallelism and of its illusion, that is, uh, that is evident by, uh, when we pay close attention to the prosody um, of this text and what really makes this text into a poetic text rather than prose. Thank you very much.